And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Gerard Manley Hopkins from God's Grandeur. Welcome to the Deep Down Things podcast, a partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into Catholic thought, culture, and everything in between as we explore the depths of God's grandeur. Hi, welcome to another episode of Deep Down Things, a podcast production of the St. Thomas Center for Catholic Studies and the Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm your host, Dave Devil, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture and a professor here at the University of St. Thomas. I am without my usual co-host, Liz Kelly, but she is with us here in spirit. We do, however, have a great guest today, one of our contributors to Logos, uh, Stephen W. Smith. He is uh, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and he contributed most recently a series of uh, uh, letters that we reprinted along with his introduction on Thomas More and Friendship. Steve, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to uh, spend some time together. Thank you. Thank you. Could you say a little bit more? I, I know I introduced you as the dean because I wanted to get those credentials in, but could you say a little bit more about uh, about your background and particularly your your big project on Thomas More from from which this uh, this came? Sure. So I'm dean of humanities at Hillsdale. I'm also the co-director of the Center for Thomas More Studies, which is located down at University of Dallas, uh, ThomasMoreStudies.org. And we do annual conferences and we support uh, the serious study of Moore and, and his legacy. The most recent fruit of all the center's works um, is the essential works of Thomas Moore, uh, which was a publication in 2020 by Yale University Press. And the idea of the book was to bring together in one volume Moore's major Latin English writings in prose and poetry, his letters, and to really get them all in one book so that more could be studied completely instead of um, in a sort of fragmentary fashion. Mm-hmm. So think of like a Riverside Shakespeare or a book like that. Those were our models, and we made a one volume, you know, all in one Thomas More. Now, were you able to get it all, all in there, or did you have to have, have anything uh, on a website? Yes, we have... Um, a supporting website, essentialmore.org. And that's a very helpful site. It contains the works that did not fit, <laughs> which <laughs> a few of Moore's longer theological writings um, are sort of edition busters, right? They're, they're very long. And so they are available completely um, on that uh, website. We also include the complete international Thomas More bibliography and complete Latin and English concordances to the works of Thomas More. So that site in particular has a tremendous uh, usefulness and uh, we're very happy with, with how that turned out. That's, that's pretty amazing. We'll, we'll be having this, this information in the show notes for listeners, but it's at Yale University has that essential Thomas More, and you can yes. go to thomasmore.org for more, for more details on the bigger project. And I believe John Boyle, my colleague, is one of the fellows at the Thomas More Center as well, right? Yes, John is a longtime fellow of the center, and he has worked on 
uh, especially Moore's theology and Moore's letters. Yeah. And uh, he's a longtime friend of the center, friend of mine personally. And we've all benefited very much from his, uh, his many, many labors on behalf of Thomas More, Thomas More Studies. That's great. That's great. Well, let's, let's jump into the to- topic that you wrote about and that you selected some material for, um, Thomas More on Friendship. You know, I'd like to note that in some corners of the Christian tradition, there have been suspicions about friendship, uh, particularly about uh, what some people have called particular friendships, you know, very close, tight-knit, one-on-one relationships. Moore didn't seem to have any of those suspicions, did he? Um, but did if if he didn't, did he see that there were any dangers to friendship? He his his dear friend Erasmus uh, wrote one of the best introductions to Moore. It's his letter of fifteen eighteen, I believe, in which he describes Moore in detail and at length. And he says in that letter that Moore was born for friendship, and that he was. Uh, just a great example of true friendship. And so he, he loved, both of them loved friendship, uh, encouraged friendship, and uh, did everything they could to grow, you know, real live, authentic friendships, especially between kind of leading figures, intellectuals, things like that. Um, are there dangers to friendship? Uh, sure, in Moore's mind. Uh, the biggest one would be a uh, perennial sort of human danger, which is flattery. Um, creeping into the relationship and corrupting it. So both Thomas More and Erasmus were admirers of Plutarch's great essay, How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, a copy of that essay was actually given at one point to Henry VIII because courts are famous for, you know, being a nest of flatterers uh, or you know, really self-interested um, secondary figures who are trying to to use the leader for their own advantages and so that essay anyone out there is interested um it's it's a powerful piece of writing plutarch how to tell a flatterer from a friend the great biographer of the ancient world right yeah it's a wonderful piece of writing and in it he he talks about um how we are all susceptible um by nature to flattery he says human beings tend to flatter themselves first and that opens them to flattery by others. Um, but in re- the real relationship of, of friendship, what we need is you know, sincerity, um, candor, and really artful truthfulness with each other. Like, so he talks about the, you know, the antidote to flattery as, as being this kind of candid, real, truthful relationship in which we will the good for each other, help each other, um, and speak to each other again with kind of sincerity and candor. So it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful essay, but he's well aware of the danger of, of flattery in particular. Mm-hmm. And then he also wrote uh, the history of Richard III. And that is his study of tyranny. And that is a very powerful piece of writing. And it survives in both an English version and a Latin version. It was one of the major sources for Shakespeare's play. And he shows there what a political world and a kind of leadership looks like without any trust at all, without friendship. And it is that culture where no one knows if I, can I trust that person? Can I not trust that person? When all those relationships are undermined, that's really 
when the tyrant emerges and arises and takes advantage of. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a really powerful, one of his very best pieces of writing about the lack of trust in political life, yeah. uh, the lack of friendship, human blindness, and, and tyranny. Yeah, civic friendship is, is one of these classical conceptions that I think we often don't think about as much in the modern world where we think of things often in terms of contractual relationships. But uh, for somebody like Moore, that was something that he, he understood in the depths of his soul, and, and he understood that a true friend would sometimes have to, have to contradict even, even the monarch. Uh, I think of Solzhenitsyn's famous line, that I, think, I think he's quoting a, a Russian proverb, but he said, the yes man is your enemy. And of course, that's, mm. that's quite often true. And I, I think that, I'm sure we'll get to it a little bit later um, in our conversation, but more like uh, many before him, understood friendship as, as not being simply sweet, uh, fun relationship, yeah. but requiring that candor and that sincerity, and when necessary, a kind of loving correction. And especially with, you know, a relationship between, you know, say Thomas More and the king, or between a leader and and one of his one of his people, that can be a very difficult art to practice, which is being truthful with a powerful person. Yeah. yeah. Was was more a personal friend of, of Henry? Well, they knew each other, you know, very well. Um the events toward the end of um, Moore's life, you know, kind of cooled the relationship. Right. However, um, I think that Moore persisted in, in seeing and understanding Henry uh, through the lens of friendship right to the very end. And that's what makes so much of the, the end of the story powerful to me yeah. is that you have, in a way, a showdown between a, a king and a loyal friend who simply won't play along with um, some of the king's decisions. So it becomes very dramatic on this point. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, there is a personal component. I mean, they used to, you know, one biographer tells us they used to watch the stars together on the roof of a royal palace. So, yeah. you know, the, these guys, they knew each other uh, well. And I think it's a, a great way to think about the story it's not simply you know political or theological, but that that friendship level is um, part of what makes it both great and painful. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. The the famous line that's often quoted is uh, that uh, that Moore said, "The king's good servant, but God's first. But my understanding is that uh, it's the king's good servant and God's first. That there was, uh, you know, that Moore saw a sort of compatibility. Is that is that right? Certainly, and. He, he was, in a way, repeating what Henry had told him, Henry's own advice when Moore had entered the king's service, which was look first to God and then to the king. And so I've often you know, wondered about that last line from Thomas More. It does read like, sound like an appeal to the king's own memory. Yeah. Um, the, and, and Moore called that the most virtuous lesson a prince ever taught. And so Moore was so artful and, and so um, prudent and so loving 
that, you know, I think he, he brings that up at the end. He was commanded to be brief. So he, he offered a, a mic drop for the ages. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so. Uh, is there, I mean, is there, we, we live in very fractious times. And, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, uh, you know, we require friendship for, for the healing of any, any country or of any age. Um, what kind of lessons uh, can we learn from him uh, about how to have friendships in times in which we are, are very much uh, separated from each other and quite often uh, very painfully so? It's a great question. I think in the first place, um, Moore would say we need to do everything we can to create the culture of friendship in the first place through education, um, through you know the work of, of teachers and schools and families, uh, civic relationships. So we have to be prepared for um, the storms that come and in, come into life. You know, as far as Moore's writings go, I like uh, the literary model of utopia as um, what as, as helpful for our times. You know, in it, Moore yeah. stages a quite a quite a strong disagreement between himself and a character named uh, Raphael. And it's about what's the best form of government, what's the best way to live, how do you train, you know, wise citizens in a republic? Um, should we have private property or not? Um, you know, all the, these are their kind of debate points. And what what more represents there is a sort of long, it's um, patient and charitable work that's ordered to persuasion. And it's also funny, which is very refreshing. Like there's good humor throughout it. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it was written in Moore's sunshine spirits. <laughs> and he, or the sunshine time or holiday spirits, I can't quite remember. But um, it has that good humor that Moore was, was known for. And that good humor that helps any relationship, right? A kind of lighthearted humor toward ourselves um, a, a kind of comic outlook right. that see, sees things in terms of um, the best outcome, ultimately happiness. But that, that literary model in Utopia, I think is great. I mean, it's funny too, right? I mean, Ra mm -hmm. Raphael, Raphael really disagree. You know, he, he, he and Moore disagree. They argue, they exchange views and positions and man, Raphael, he can bring it. He can he can speak at length on subjects. He can kind of overwhelm listeners with torrents of speech. And at the end of uh, Utopia, listeners may recall, Thomas More leads him to dinner because he sees that he's tired out from all that talking. Right. And More is not sure that Raphael could bear a contradiction <laughs> at the moment. At the moment. After, at the after moment. All right. This yeah. So there's this there's a funny kind of hope at the end, right? That there's going to be this, you know other conversation um, with a little more time, with some affection, some humor, and some, you know, some real follow-up. Um, and that's that's that beautiful that kind of, you know, that beautiful model, I think, that comes out of Utopia. The other thing is what, what comes up in that work is we, we all have a lot of questions we want to know the answer to, like what's the best form of government or what's the best way to live or these kinds of things. And Moore is very much alive to the challenge of short questions that require long answers. <laughs> so we, we all, it would be great if you could just, you know, answer in, in a Twitter length um, tweet, 
you know, you know, if you could answer the fundamental questions of, of life and existence, but it doesn't seem to work that way. It requires more time, requires right. patience, requires work, toil of thinking, conversation. So he's very good on, on that point. And um, I think that that's a beautiful model. You know, the other one that comes out in the uh, essential works is his relationship with his daughter, Meg. Mm-hmm. And especially in the Tower of London, Meg is the recipient um, of many of his final uh, letters. And so there, you know, a, a listener could, could see and read um, and study how a kind of parent-child relationship grows into a very beautiful friendship with difficult conversations, with disagreements, um, but ultimately with you know, kind of beautiful victory uh, by, by the end. So that, those, those would be my two quick answers would be mm-hmm. utopia as a model and then the more Meg relationship as a model as well. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu. That's stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. You know, it strikes me that in both cases there is, and you, and you brought it out, uh, this incarnate quality that right, we need to be aware when our when the people we're talking to need dinner, need a sandwich, right, or something like that. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, I mean, we, I we I think most of us thank God for the wonders of our technology. You and I are speaking speaking through together through technology. We're not in the same studio, and it's it's wonderful. But did you think that that this is perhaps one of the biggest uh, exacerbators? Is that much of our communication? Uh, takes place in discarnate forms. And maybe when people are in largely fundamental agreement or are friendly, that's fine. But with disagreement, it's very difficult uh, to treat somebody as a human being, uh, you know, through pixels or through, through, you know, through sound. Yeah, I mean, Milton, Milton in Paradise Lost, you know, writes beautifully about the human face divine. Yeah. And there really is... Uh, something or even everything to face-to-face communication. And so, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but I mean, with social media, I've heard it said many times, someone would say that to another person, but would never say such a thing face-to-face to to the person. Or they might and get punched, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, yeah, I'll heck with break loose. But that that human face divine, you know, having that face-to-face encounter that's re- that's real, and that that's where you know all the uh, all the action really is. And you know, look, I'm happy we're able to talk through this means. You know, this is great. Yeah. Um, but I would love to have a meal with you. I'd love to um, get together and and have a drink, right? And have a long conversation about friendship and and everything we care about. You know, because because there, there is a difference. Yeah. So. Um, 
that human face divine is what really stands out in my mind. Uh, you, you know, connecting this again uh, to, you know, to Meg, my understanding is that Moore largely homeschooled his students. Uh, in many ways, I re- recall hearing, uh, I think it was Robert Royal speaking on, on Moore and how he, he would uh, teach his children the Greek alphabet by hanging Greek letters, you know, from, the, uh, from lines on a tree and have his children shoot them, and they had to identify which letter they shot, <laughs> things like that. Um, what, what, what does an education for friendship look like for Moore? How, how did he educate Meg, uh, you know, to be, to be a friend? That's a great question. Again, um, there is a letter that he wrote to his children's teacher um, that survives. And I think that's one of his most important pieces of writing. In fact, our friend John Boyle has, has written on it beautifully. Yeah. So in that letter, Moore's letters, by the way, are remarkable. And in this case, we have a great author, a great citizen, a historical figure giving advice to the teacher about how to educate the child. And I think that it's just a precious, precious letter. And, you know, there's no sort of magic solution to teaching someone how to really will the good for another person. (laughs) Right. Um, For for oneself and for others. Um, But for the teacher, uh, Moore says, uh, they they need to certainly love the student um, appropriately and, you know, with good order. And he tells them, especially if you're dealing with a gifted student, like Meg was an incredibly gifted student and Moore knew it. So in this letter, he he talks about the dangers of pride and hubris for an aspiring intellectual like Meg. And then Meg went on to publish the devout treatise on the Our Father. So she's a writer uh, and, you know, first rate intellect, as you can tell from the exchanges between them. So what do you do with this kind of talented person? And he talks about helping the person avoid the precipices of pride. He also says you don't habituate the person, you know, to desiring uh, to please the greatest number of people. <laughs> right. Um, to see you mean it's not all about likes and retweets? <laughs> exactly. Well, he says, he, he actually tells the teacher, you know, if you, we can't, we it makes sense and then it becomes objectionable that we 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 teach a young person accidentally to always seek praise as the recompense for for virtue yeah and and that backfires now of course thomas more was a warm father you know we have other letters where he praises his children so it's not that's not the point's not you know you never praise your kid or something but he's talking about the habituation to um it's always seeking, seeing praise as the reward of virtue. So yeah. when, the, when the person grows up, they end up wanting to please the greater number, usually the worst. And um, they, they can even end up being ashamed to be good or lacking the courage to be good. So that's a very interesting point to me. Um, what happens in life when you realize that courage may not lead to praise. Right, right. <laughs> so that, that habit is one that he zooms in on. But, but also um, he, he tells the teacher, look, you need to see kind of peace of soul and the formation of a right conscience as 
the good, the goals of, of education as well. How do, we, how do we acquire peace of soul? How do we acquire um, a right conscience that kind of serves as a faithful friend throughout the whole of life? How do we avoid being kind of puffed up by pride or flattery or overly moved by strong emotions? That's what he's interested in talking to the teacher about. And, and he wants this for his, for his daughter. Yeah. He wants that peace of soul, that stability and good order. Uh, he wants a right conscience. Um, of course, uh, he wants virtue. And in that letter, a uh, very famous line of his is, and this is from a very learned man, um, put virtue in the first place, learning in the second. So th this letter in particular to the, the children's teacher, I think is the most valuable uh, on this subject. Yeah. That, I mean, and that brings us to the question. I mean, Moore is, he is Sir Thomas Moore, uh, but he's also St. Thomas Moore, and he had a friendship with God, and that's, that was most important to him. Uh, you know, how, how did Moore see human friendship as, as proceeding from that friendship with God? Is it just that, you know, as you pointed out, you become virtuous, and then virtuous people become better friends? Uh, or is, 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 there, is there more to it than that, that divine source of friendship? Well, I think with more, um, the, the, the divine model is, is of, of God's love for the human being is finally a model of friendship. He says as much in the Tower of London, and he sees uh, Christ as friend and God as friend of the human being. And so, while he doesn't quote Thomas Aquinas's definition of charity as being nothing other than friendship with God, um, he, I, I think this is how he understands it. Yeah. So it, it's not just a, on, on the human level, we share things in common, we find our way to one another, we help one another, love one another yeah, in human friendship. The, the great model comes from, from God to humanity, actually, in, in the charity and the love of God. So it's a, it's a beautiful connection that he really emphasizes near the end of his life in particular, but it's present, present from the beginning that you know, God is the friend of the human being for Thomas More, and the relationship is one of, of love and friendship. He also, uh, earlier in his career, uh, and listeners may want to look this up as well, as he wrote a beautiful poem on uh, friendship. And nothing is more helpful than a loyal friend, he says. And he tells the story of a blind man and a lame man who discover one another and help one another overcome their limitations. Yeah. And the poem, the poem ends with uh, Thomas More saying that the love which uh, unites kind of governs in humility and shuns the castles of proud kings. So, you know, that, that friendship is just a wire to wire, beginning to end, a lifelong interest of his. Erasmus, when he said Thomas More was born for friendship, uh, he was yeah. really, he really knew him, that's what I'm saying. And, you know, at the, at the end too, um, in the Tower of London, you know, his last major work is The Sadness of Christ, 
and one part of that that great great work involves Moore's analysis of Christ's friendship toward Judas and his friendship toward Peter. Yeah, and that's another um, just rich rich moment in um, the Tower writings. You know, he understands Christ's final interactions with Judas as something like a lifeline of friendship, right. even at that even at that moment. And maybe just the last point on this subject, when he was at his trial and he was condemned, you know, he does give voice to the hope that despite the fact that, you know, he has been condemned to death on earth by these judges, that they'll all make merry together in heaven. Yeah. And in one of his final prayers, he also expresses the hope for eternal friendship, even with one's enemies. Yeah, uh, on earth. So this is um, just at the heart of this person, of this author, of this uh, this great leading citizen of England. I think that's what that's what makes him a saint. Um, <laughs> that capacity to 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 forgive and to seek out friendship, even even in being offended. Um, that, that's that's incredibly powerful. Well, let me ask you this question here. For for listeners who uh, who who've always been interested in Thomas More, but maybe have uh, you know tried to read some of it and it's a little bit difficult, where would you recommend that they start reading Thomas More? Is there a particular shorter volume, or is there is there something that uh, that you could recommend? I know I know you know the essential Thomas More is pretty essential, but it's also you know a thousand pages or something like that. But is there something <laughs> short that you would point them to either on the website or in print uh, that you could direct them? Well, certainly the the letter I mentioned, the letters in, in general are a wonderful way to get to know him personally. Um, they reflect his humanity in so many different ways, and you can draw very close to him through through letters. Yeah. Now, as far as writings go, several years back, um, my co-editor uh, Gerard Wegemer at University of Dallas and I put out the Thomas More source book with uh, Catholic University Press of America. And that remains, I think, a very helpful introduction to Thomas More, to his mind and to his heart and to his whole way of seeing yeah. uh, human life and civic life. And so that's uh, that remains, I think, a great place to start. As far as More's own writings go, you, know, you can't go wrong with Utopia though it can be yeah. difficult to, yeah. to understand. Um, I mentioned the sadness of Christ in the Tower of London. That is a scriptural commentary on the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. And that is a remarkable piece of writing that exists in a beautiful translation by Clarence Miller. So that's a very winning and very thought-provoking piece of writing. Uh, for those who um, like the Renaissance, Thomas More's first English publication was The Life of Pico. And this is this is the Pico, you know, Oration on the Dignity of Man. Yeah. And he translates The Life of Pico from Latin, and he makes all kinds of interesting additions and cuts and deletions. And so if you ever wanted to know what Thomas More, as a young humanist, thought about Pico, uh, you, you can study that. And that's a beautiful book on both virtue and learning and then also the love of God. So mm -hmm. those are a few ideas for, for starters. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I believe my my late teacher, Cardinal Avery Dulles, I believe he wrote a, a sen- his senior thesis at Harvard on Pico. Uh, but I've never I've never looked it up to see whether he uh, he he looked at uh, at Thomas More in that or not. Um, I have not I know I've not read that myself, but um, I'd yeah. love to actually. It is, sounds sounds interesting. Yeah, well. That's that's really helpful. And again, for our listeners, we'll have all of this in the show notes so that you can uh, so that you can follow up Professor Smith's uh, recommendations. Now, Steve, uh, what what are you working on right now? Do you have another gigantic volume? Or are you working on some articles? And and where can we find your work? Well, thank thank heavens, uh, the the essential work was was a was a mighty labor, and uh, could never have been done without friendship and collaboration. So Gerard Wegemer at University of Dallas and I, and and a dedicated staff uh, labored and labored away on that that work for quite some time. And so it's it's both a a happy uh, occasion to have it published and and certainly a relief, you know, as well. Uh, But right now I'm working on a study of the last year of Thomas More's life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very interested in the tower, the tower writings, and what this, you know, leading citizen and great author of England, what did he think about in the tower? How did he see things? Uh, How did he counsel others? I just think that last year of his life is precious and engrossing and, and powerful to see a first rate, really genius, under those circumstances, um, imprisonment, trial, and death, but writing the entire time from the day, practically the day he was arrested until the day before his execution. And, uh, and then, as you mentioned, we also have his uh, last words on the scaffold. So yeah. I've been over the last um, well nine months or so now working through these tower tower writings and um, you know, trying to share them with, with others. That's, that's the big goal. Yeah. I was very, very happy by the way, to, to do the reconsiderations piece for your journal, because I do love introducing Thomas more. Yeah. And that was, I appreciate, and I thank you for that opportunity. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. And you did, you did a marvelous job introducing and really making readers, I think, want to know more as he's certainly not a plaster saint, but he's, he's flesh and blood and with, with, with a great heart and a heart that beats for God. So this is going to, this is a project, a book, book project then? Yes, I'm working on it um, right now. That will be, that will be wonderful. We'll be looking forward to this. Well, our time has come to an end. Steve, thank you so much for being with us here on Deep Down Things. Thank you very much for, again, the opportunity. And it's great to, uh, to get together and grow our friendship and talk about Thomas More. Amen. Amen. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us for another episode of Deep Down Things. We hope that you will uh, find us on Patreon. Our patreon.com site is patreon.com backslash deep down things. Uh, we hope that you will uh, support us there and join our conversation. Until uh, the next time, I'm Dave Devil, and we thank you. God bless. <laughs>